Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have Bob Mayer. He has written over 80 books, and he's a New York Times bestseller. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thanks. I appreciate you having me. Um, so I was looking at some of your books, and one of the main topics that you seem to write about is Area 51. Um, like what got you into area 51 and like, have you actually done any research on it? Um, the area 51 series, I think we're up to 13 books now has been written over an arc of 25 years. So mm. the first book came out in 95 when a lot of people hadn't heard of area 51 and my ex-wife, my wife at the time was an army aviator. Um, she was one of the first women to fly in combat and she had mentioned to me that flying from Fort Campbell to National Training Center at Fort Irwin, you had to divert around uh, Area 51. That whole airspace was as highly classified as that of the White House. And that was the initial spark, I think, that got me interested in it. And I started researching, and that was 95. So that was the year Independence Day came out. And, uh, well, I started researching in 94. When 95 Independence Day came out, X-Files. So everyone got interested. Um, I've been out in the area. I went out there with a, a team from, uh, I think it was the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, they were doing a show about ancient artifacts. Uh, so they did an interview outside the, uh, by the mailbox outside the gate there. I've, I've researched it pretty extensively. Uh, one of the things that interested me was that I pretty much found that all the talk about the alien stuff really goes back to one guy, Bob Lazar. Um, everybody was quoting him for most of that and a lot of the rest of it was made up but I was a fiction writer and so I could I can play with things that's what I like doing I like fi finding things I call them uh, myths or legends whether they're ancient ones like Atlantis or modern ones like Area 51 and running with it uh, taking it a step further saying what if and I really wrote the first book as a standalone but then uh, the series took off I had a nine book series with uh, random house and i recently picked it back up again about two years ago I, I picked the series back up because i felt enough time had passed and i looked at and there's some loose ends out there so i've started writing more area 51 books that's pretty cool um yeah i mean bob lazar is definitely one of the people that got me interested in all this stuff as well <laughs> um i had actually worked for for uh bell labs and I was outside. This was in the 90s. I think it was like around 98, 99, something like that. And I was outside smoking a cigarette, and I was talking to somebody out there, and he was telling me um, that the technology from for, for, for fiber optics and the silicone chip all came from reverse engineering Area 51, and he knew this because he used to work for NASA. Right. And now he was, you know, working at Bell trying to get stuff out, you know, through corporations. Mm -hmm. And I thought nothing of it. Like, one, you know, why would this guy tell me this if it was true? You know, so I kind of discarded it. And then about a couple of years later, Bob came out with a story. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Maybe that guy was telling me the truth. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, one of the premises of my books is we don't know as much as we think we know. Um, if you really start doing a deep dive into a lot of subject matters, you find that uh, some of the things that people take for granted as proof isn't really proof. It's just theory. Mm -hmm. so, so what direction do you take it in your books? Uh, my books, I take it that uh, it's out there, the location, because they found something there during the early days of World War II. Uh, essentially, in the books, they, they found the mothership uh, buried out there. Um, back at the, the end of World War II and the Majestic 12 has been, like you say, reverse engineering things from it, trying to figure out how to fly it. They've been flying some smaller craft they found down in Antarctica um, during, during Operation High Jump, which was, I think, 1947, 1948, which was really interesting because they put a lot of manpower into Operation High Jump and it was quite strange. 
um, why they did that. They took so many pictures of Antarctica that they haven't even developed some of them yet. Um, so I kind of combine a lot of facts, um, a lot of things that really happen, a lot of uh, history that really happened with a, with a fictional premise of, okay, there's, there's a mothership buried there. And then over the course of 13 books, I'm gradually revealing why, who left it there, you know, what role did Earth have to play in this much huger picture? Uh, the last couple of books I've done, I've really expanded the universe. Um, one of the titles is Interstellar. So you mm -hmm. get an idea of what I'm talking about. Title of another book's Invasion because uh, things kind of come full circle. You know, why, where's Earth placed in the bigger scheme of things? Um, in your books, um, are the aliens good guys or bad guys? Well, some are good, some are bad, and... I prefer to go with sort of, we don't know. Um, the premise in Area 51 is that we got left alone because there was a civil war among the aliens who had initially uh, come here. And then for a long time, I'm giving a lot of things away in the series here, but for a long time, they find the great truth. They think at the end of Area 51, the truth, the seventh book, that we were uh, genetically designed to be foot soldiers in this interstellar war. But in my books, nothing is ever quite as it seems, and that gets flipped on its head in a, in a future book. Um, and then there's a species called the swarm, which mm -hmm. basically wipe, seems to wipe out all intelligent life and encounters. And, but even that's not as it appears to be. And I still haven't quite finished that one yet. I, I kind of explained where they came from in the last book, um, Earth Abides. Uh, Area 51 Earth Abides, and people thought it ended the series because I kind of wiped out the main characters that have been going along, but that still doesn't quite end the series yet because I have to take it a step further. Because uh, one of the things I introduced was there was a previous human civilization in the solar system mm -hmm. uh, well before, millions of years ago, and I introduced that in the last book, and that was kind of fun to do that, to talk about you know this great space station out there where the uh, meteor, uh, meteor belt is. Wow. Do you ever, like, when you're writing, especially, like, like, a long series with a lot of the characters, do you ever, for like, like, kind of forget, like, who's who and stuff like that? Oh, or, or what they're doing? Or, or, like, you go, you read something that, like, you read something, you're like, oh, wait, this doesn't tie into something that I wrote, you oh, know, three years yeah. ago. How do I fix that? Stuff I have like a terrible that. memory. Um, I do a story Bible. I wish I would started one with Area 51 when I began, because I literally had to go back and reread all the first nine books um, before I started the newest one. And even then it's, I still have a hard time. Uh, sometimes I constantly have to research. I'm getting better at keeping a story Bible, um, mm -hmm. a newest series, which is more suspense, not science fiction. I, I'm very strict about making notes of every name and everything. But like I said, I twist things a lot. What appears, one of my mottos is what appears to be isn't. So, you know, you can look at, I have to keep track of my own twists and my own stories, which is confusing sometimes. Wow. Interesting. Um, have you covered, have you done any books? Uh, well, I think you have actually, uh, on time travel. Yeah. I used to say two topics don't write about the, uh, time travel and the president. Uh, <laughs> the so of course I wrote a, a time travel series and I've written a presidential series. Mm -hmm. The time travel series was a lot of fun. Uh, the newest book just came out, um, Equinox. And the premise of that series is, I wrote it because I, like, I always liked um, the original Time Patrol series, so mine's the Time Patrol, in homage to that. And I evolved that out of my Night Stalker series, which I was writing for Amazon Science Fiction Imprint. But what I did was I came up with this template for a book, and I thought it would be easy, and it turned out to be exceptionally hard because I'm writing basically six short stories inside a larger novel, in that the Time Patrol, I pick a day of the year, like D-Day or Independence Day, um, Ides of March is another one. And on that day, this parallel Earth is trying to go, they send reps to those six days, that date, six days in the six different years in the past, and they're trying to change our history. And they're trying to wipe us out. So in that 24-hour period, six time patrol agents have to go back in history on the same date, different years, and keep history the same. And the fun part of that is you pick a date like Equinox. I had to find mm -hmm. out what happened on September 22nd in history. Well, Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, 
you know, I got I to gotta find all the events that happen and pick the six ones I think I would choose to change our history. And I send the uh, agents back. Nathan Hale was hanged on um, 22 September. Um, so a lot of history in those books. Those books are really heavy history oriented. Oh, that's why you have Abe Lincoln on the cover. Yeah, yeah. Cause that was the main story. But I actually found the uh, Nathan Hale one to be fascinating because they never found his body. So once I learned that, I was like, okay, why, is, why wasn't his body ever found? Which was unusual back then because, you know, they played by gentleman rules to a certain extent. And they, they hung him in Manhattan. And the, uh, George Washington still had troops in northern Manhattan at the time. You think they would turn the body over. So I, I ran with that idea. I also did the Berlin airlift, which has always fascinated me. A couple other things in that book. It was a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, and, and, and like, how do you like doing a time travel book has to be complicated because of all the, uh, the time paradoxes. You know, I've always liked that scene from Looper where Bruce Willis is sitting in mm -hmm. the, the diner and he goes, I, I don't ask me to explain time travel because I'm going to end up, you know, twisting a straw into knots. Uh, I basically just accept it is, um, and that's why they're the, the goal of the time patrol is to keep history exactly the same because people are always like, well, could you make it better when you do that? And my, the point is their mantra is, yeah, but we still exist. And they know timelines that have been wiped out because they tried to change things. Uh, so I just sort of accept the premise that it exists. Um, I try not to get to, we don't control that our timeline doesn't control it. The other guy's timeline does, and we're sort of piggying back on their missions. They can't keep us out of the bubble in time they create in the past. So we can get into that bubble and, and play with what they're trying to do. So, so what happens when a timeline gets wiped out? Does everything just vanish? Yeah, it just disappears. It's, um, uh, some of them haven't been wiped out. They still exist, but they're in really bad shape. Matter of fact, in Equinox, one of the missions is he goes back to when the gold plates that um, Joseph Smith found, supposedly, for Mormonism, the Book of Mormon. One of the characters goes to that hillside and finds with, uh, he meets one of the fates. I have them as characters in the books. And they pick up the gold plates, but they're actually more like computer chips. And she takes him to a bunch of timelines, swapping around gold plates to align something. And my character has no clue what he's doing. He's just doing this with her. And I honestly have no clue what their goal was. I'm just like, they're like, hey, we, we got to make sure these things are all lined up. Uh, so they're sort of a smaller part of this much bigger universal picture. Wow. So when you're writing, um, do you think it is like you think of your plot to plan everything in advance or do you just let, like let your characters and your, and your, and your stories kind of write themselves? I used to plot a lot, uh, but I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, and I, I always just tell people, I mean, I can, I can fix anybody's plot and I've done a lot of my wife and I run workshops in our house and I've worked with writers and I can always come up with a way to fix it. So I finally accepted I wanted to focus on characters. Nowadays, what I do is I just start with a premise and a group of characters, and I throw obstacles in their way. Mm -hmm. And I've written so much, I, I'm, I intuitively kind of know when I'm screwing up or I'm going wrong with, with what I'm doing. But I prefer to let the characters tell the story now. It's a lot more fun. Um, they, they go in some weird directions sometimes. Uh, sometimes I have to stop and reboot. But I, I teach writers because I talk a lot about the process of creativity these days. And I tell them, trust your subconscious. Hopefully, that's why you never edit anything out of your first draft of a book. Because you put things in there that don't seem to make sense. That just seem like, yeah, that's dumb. Why did, why did I write that? And delete it. No, don't delete it. Leave it there for the first draft. Because your subconscious put it there for a reason. You just don't consciously know it yet. And it could be three months later, you're writing and all of a sudden you realize, oh, the solution to my problem right here is that thing I put in three months ago back in chapter two. That's why I put it there. I just didn't know I put it there for that reason. That's pretty cool. I don't have to try writing that way. It's a lot. It's faster in some ways, but it's more difficult in that you really got to free your brain to be open to all sorts of possibilities. Uh, yesterday I was out biking, I was up in the Smokies biking, and I was thinking, you know, the book I'm writing right now is a, is a sequel to a, actually a romance, a romantic comedy. I co-wrote with Jennifer Cruz years ago, and I, I'm doing a wedding, 
And on the run up to the wedding, I'm thinking, well, what could possibly happen? And what action can I throw into the scene? You know, because I got to have action moving a phone. I'm thinking, okay, the bad guys, they kidnap the, uh, the bishop who's going to, you know, look, uh, do the wedding. And that just came to me while I was in the middle of a bike ride. And I, it's the only thing I use my phone for really is I hit the record button and leaned over and I, I uh, spoke that into the record. So now I have to come over to kidnapping. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, I, I think too, and I've done like, I've actually seen like, I do most of the writing in my head first and then I write later. Um, that, uh, to me, it's uh, Bryce Courtney, who is the number one all-time selling author in Australia. I was talking with him one time at the Maori Writers Conference. And to me, it's really about butting the chair, looking at the screen and just going, all right, what now? Hmm. And just start writing and keep pushing it forward as much as possible. And every scene has to have conflict. That's a, that's a huge key I learned early on in my writing career. If your scene doesn't have conflict, the reader loses interest really fast. Um, do you have any favorite writers? Um, I like read. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read who my wife recommends. Um, mm -hmm. Margaret, uh, Margaret Atwood, of course, Kate Atkinson, Life After Life was a mind-blowing book. I like Michael Conley. Um, I read across all genres. Um, there's a lot of good writing out there. We also, uh, as opposed to some writers who go kill you television, we watch a lot of television, a lot of documentaries. Yesterday, we watched about five hours on the War of the Roses in England. Um, and that gives me a lot of resource material. And not just if I'm writing about that topic, but just what happened in those true people in history I can put into my novels and fiction. Hmm. Some of the best writing out there right now is on the cable channels. I mean, there's some series that were just mind blowing. You know, um, I found the first, I tell people watch the pilot episode of, um, uh, what was the reboot? Uh, Westworld, the pilot episode of Westworld was mind blowing. They, hmm. new, the reboot of the Battlestar Galactica. I really enjoyed that series. Uh -huh. uh, Breaking Bad was brilliantly written. I watched Breaking Bad. And I watched, I think, the first season of Westworld. I never watched a reboot of it. Well, it is, that is the reboot. Oh, it is? Yeah, yeah. The first two seasons were really good. People didn't particularly care for the third season, but they took it in a very different direction. And that's the fun part to watch, too, as a writer. You, you, when you binge a series a second time, you know what's going to happen so you can focus on what the writers did. And as a writer, I'm always fascinated to see what direction they took all the threads they're holding on to. Um, you know, it's a lot of fun when you, a lot of times you can anticipate what they're going to do as a writer because they have to foreshadow it, but it's always fun to be surprised. Um, have you watched the final season of Game of Thrones? <laughs> I was telling my wife that yesterday. I was saying, you know, that's, one series that screwed it up so badly, nobody ever talks about it anymore. I mean, really, if you look on social media, nobody talks about Game of Thrones. It's like it's just gone. Nobody talks about re-watching it, re-binging it. It's just like they screwed that last season up so badly. And it was just, you know, I remember when George R. R. Martin came to Thriller Fest and was talking about it. And I was just thinking, you know, why even bother to write the last book? They already killed this thing for you. You know, I mean, I guess he could do it the way he wants, but... Uh, that just made no sense uh, at all. Well, the problem was I never figured out who the protagonist was either. I mean, that mm -hmm. was just good characters thrown in. And actually, the interesting part is what we were watching yesterday, The War of the Roses. I really believe that's what inspired uh, George R. R. Martin. You know, The War of the Roses in, in England, the Middle Ages, was very much Game of Thrones. When, the, you know, two the Lancasters and the Yorks fought each other all those years, and then the uh, Tudors came onto the throne. I mean, it's just totally Game of Thrones. Hmm. Interesting. I never really researched uh, the Word of Roses that much, uh, but but I do know when I, when I watched Game of Thrones, like I really liked it, and then that last season, just like <laughs> I was like, what happened? <laughs> I know. I didn't even know what Bronze Point in the the series was. What cert? And then you give them, It's like you know. Somebody said it's like giving the. Uh, in a group project, the kid who did no work, the A. It's like, wait. It, it, awesome. it wasn't even filmed well. Like, no, no. Like the it, battle it, scenes were like so dark and snowy, like you couldn't see anything. I know. Yeah. Oh. 
a lot, there was a lot of logic flaws. They, 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 they wrote themselves into a corner uh, and they didn't know what to do. Mm. That's a bummer. Um, so you've also written a lot of books about Green Beret. So you, you do have military experience yourself. Oh yeah, I was in the, uh, I graduated West Point and I was in the infantry in the first cav division, um, infantry platoon, then a recon, a battalion recon platoon, a brigade recon platoon, and I went to special forces training. And then I went to 10 special forces group, which was the, the cold, uh, cold weather mountain group, commanded an A team, and I, I did other jobs. I've worked out of uh, Western Special Operations Command in Hawaii for a while around the Pacific Rim. In the reserves, I taught at the um, JFK Special Warfare Center in school at Fort Bragg. Um, so pretty much in all my books, I have a character who's got a special forces background. Um, and because you know, write what you know, and, and it was, it's interesting. I think people find that kind of character interesting. Hmm. Um, so, so, uh, your, your, your in the military, uh, during that, did you ever come across anything interesting or unusual? You know, it's funny. One of the, I, I, I wrote a series called Night Stalkers, and the, Night Stalkers is the name of Task Force 160. And I was around when they were first formed up after what happened in the Desert One, Eagle Claw, and the Iranian hostage rescued them. A couple guys on my team were on that okay. um, mission. And so I wrote a book. The premise was, you know, who's the special ops team that takes care of things that go bump in the night? The reason is because we, I remember one time I was flying around and I, in a black helicopter and wondering who's in the black helicopters. I'd see other black helicopters and I think who's in those. And I realized I was in the black helicopter. And, um, I started thinking, you know, we'd run into guys from other, uh, special operations group and go, are you guys doing this thing? And they'd go, no, we thought you were doing this thing. And I realized, you know, who, who knows who's doing what? Uh, so I had a lot of fun with that to say, you know, really, you know, I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories, even though I write them. Uh, cause of my, as, my dog says, uh, four, three can keep a secret or four are dead. Um, and plus the other thing in the military, we do take our also secrecy very seriously. And I always tell people what's really happening, you don't know about. If you know about it, it's not happening. If it's really happening, you don't know about it. Hmm. I don't know. Actually, um, this morning I just interviewed somebody who is a, uh, a participant in Project Stargate. Mm-hmm. And, and he was telling me about the secrecy, you know, like one of the debunking things, one of the things that debunkers will always say is like, uh, you know, the government can't keep a secret. And, um, and he was telling me like, you know, like how they, you know, about the compartmentalization and the oath. And, and he said that he's, he's seen people, you know, you know, break a secret and, and they just come and he, arrest them and take them away <laughs> you just never see them again oh, like, people they, take their, like, take like their, they just end up working in some remote place in the world doing some crap ass yeah. job oh, yeah. people take their the oath of secrecy i've never revealed anything that was classified even if it's no longer classified um unless i can find it open source uh, like mm-hmm. for example early on one of our classified missions in special forces we had backpack nuke teams um that's no longer secret because they don't do it anymore because we have tomahawk cruise missiles do that right. job so that's not a big deal, but no, the guys I know who do classified work, keep the work classified. Uh, I do remember a uh, brother-in-law was in the Air Force and Special Operations, and he said what they got out at Wright-Patterson, he said, would blow your mind. He didn't say anything more than that. And he, he was a pretty credible source. He actually ended up commanding uh, down at England Air Force Base, a Special Operations Unit, and he, he'd worked at Wright-Patterson. Uh, and he said, there's some unbelievable stuff out there. <laughs> You know, hidden away, and that's about all he would say about it. Really, I, I think that's where I heard that they have a whole bunch of stuff underground and have like a secret space program or something. You know, if I was going to hide something, you know where I'd put it? I'd put it out on uh, Johnston Atoll, in the middle of Pacific, where they've stored all the cr- bad chemical munitions. Because nobody is going to Johnston Atoll to take a look. Hmm. I've never even heard of it. I'll have to look it that's, up. That's part of it too. That's the other key. The things you don't hear about are the real things. Yeah. Um, so, so um, 
Have you ever been inspired by things like, uh, say, like the Philadelphia experiment or the Montauk experiment, stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was walking in the library one day and I saw a book that said Japan's Secret War. And I pulled it off the shelf and the author claimed that the Japanese actually detonated an atomic bomb at the end of World War II in Manchuria as part of their testing. And I don't believe they did that. But as a fiction writer, I can take that for a run. Um, the whole Manhattan Project, um, Los Alamos, um, Trinity tests, things like that. You know, you, you can have a lot of fun with things that actually happened and taking them one step further out there. You know, And they have tried a lot of strange things. Um, you know, I mean, I like when they started up the big uh, underground thing in Sweden. And they were like, you know, we're not sure if this is going to destroy the world. They were taking bets to Trinity test on whether it would ignite the atmosphere. I'm trying mm-hmm. to think who took the bet saying, yeah, it would, uh, you know, but they didn't, they weren't certain what they were doing. Interesting. How about harp? Harp I've used in books. Um, in, uh, I'm trying to think, Psychic Warrior. That's an example of taking something that was real and taking a step further. We ran a program in 10 Special Forces. Initially, they called it, or does it believe they did call it Jedi Warrior. Um, and I guess they thought, you know, we can't do that. And they changed the name to Trojan Warrior because uh, the Trojan horse is the, on the crest of 10 Special Forces. But they took two A-teams, and they just their goal was to make a better soldier out of guys who were already Green Berets. And they brought in monks to teach them meditation, martial arts instructors, biofeedback. They did blood packing. Mm-hmm. They learned how to control their heartbeat, their body temperature. Um, they did all sorts of stuff. My team was the test bed, Ted. We, we didn't get the training. We took all the tests with them. So I, I wrote a book called Psychic Warrior. And what I based that on was the theory that, you know, the USS Thresher was sunk by the Russians using psychic weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Russians were really into that stuff because they weren't a match for us in nuclear capability. They were really experimenting with psychic stuff. Plus, we ran into um, grill Frank. Uh, grill flame, you know, the CIA's remote yeah. viewing thing. They actually did some work with the General Doja kidnapping in Italy. They didn't find him, but they did get the input from those guys. And I talked to, um, I was supposed to write a book with Steven Seagal, who claimed he was part in the CIA and worked with uh, grill flame on, on operations. Mm-hmm. So I took that, and I wrote a book called Psychic Warrior, which is basically, I, I imagine the Russians keeping their program going and being able to create an avatar upload it into the virtual uh, plane and then reassemble it in a remote location on the real plane. Hmm. Uh, and they, they managed to achieve that. And of course we have to bring our guys who got trained in the basic psychic warrior program, upgrade them into being the same thing. And I wrote that book and then uh, psychic warrior project aura. And it's, I think it was in project aura, um, the heart thing came into play all, all the antennas and what they were doing out there. I think I actually destroyed it in that book. <laughs> Do you think that, uh, the, our, that our government still works in, uh, you know, with like psychic warfare? I think they work on anything they can. Uh, yeah, the black budget is immense and they are willing to try pretty much anything on the off chance it could work. Yeah, they, they did work in remote viewing. The CIA did the LSD work for mind control. Um, they're doing a lot of work on the mind right now. Can they enhance the mind? Can they put chips in your brain to give you extra information? Uh, one thing they're working on is trying to, you know, cut down the amount of sleep you need when you're deployed then um, not have your long-term memory degrade. Uh, they're doing a lot of cutting edge uh, research out there. Um, so if you, I would say if you could imagine it, someone's looking into it. <laughs> That's kind of like the model of my podcast. If it can be imagined, somebody yeah. out there is doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you want to take a real basic level. I tell my wife all the time, you know, if you can think of a gadget you want. It's on Amazon. You know, did someone make a, you know, hedge clipper that does this, this, and this? I said, if you thought of it, someone invented it, it's on Amazon. And that's pretty much true. That's like, like um, one of the things that, is like human cloning. Like we know it's possible because th- most of our food is, is genetically modified. Right. And, um, you know, so, you know, if we have, uh, you know, GMO food, I'm going to guess that we have um, like uh, 
GHO, genetically modified, or GMHs, genetically modified humans running around too. I would imagine that the Chinese are probably leading in that because they have much less uh, stringent laws. But I'm sure they're doing it. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know there's actually been proof of the Chinese doing it. Um, but, But I think they probably do it here too. Who knows? I mean, the corporate America is on a run, operates on a whole different set of rules than the government. Hmm. Is cloning anything that you ever cover? I have a full, yeah, actually in the Area 51 books, one of the things the aliens did was leave behind, um, both sides of the Civil War left behind agents. One side used human clones um, as their agents to keep track of things. The other side left behind um a hybrid of their species and humans to keep track of everything. So one of the interesting things I did was I essentially had two characters that had come here from another human world and were able to keep regenerating themselves through cloning. They would download their memories into a uh, chip they wore around their necks. And every 20 years or so, they would go back to their spaceship, which was buried on the Stonehenge. um, And they would reload themselves into a clone of themselves. So they were, Essentially, almost immortal. It's a good idea. Um, so, what is like the uh, most outlandish, craziest thing that you've written about? Uh, well, where like I, something that you've you've written it, and you're like you started like maybe like even questioning yourself about it. I, I don't know. I, I mean, the Area Fifty One series is pretty wild. But I try to make it all somewhat plausible. Uh-huh. I mean, it's sort of like time travel. If you don't accept the premise that it could possibly exist, you're not going to be interested in it at all. My theory on time travel has always been if it ever exists, it exists now. And time is a variable. So it probably does exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's reasons why it's not interfering with us, or maybe it is. How do we know? We don't know. Um, and I, I, I keep going back to, we just don't know what we think we know. Like when I researched the great Sphinx of Giza, you know, it's been weathered by rain. Well, the climate was very, very different when it was first built. So when was it built? They're not really sure. I mean, you get these estimates that are all over the place. Same thing with the great pyramid. And what I like doing is supplying just a different reason for things that people absolutely know exist. And I'm saying, well, maybe there's a different reason for that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the reason they're telling you and they can't ensure is true isn't the real reason. And you've also written about Atlantis. My Atlantis series is basically uh, a series about parallel worlds. Um, my premise on that book was basically, you know, if you research Atlantis, it all goes back to, to one saying by Plato. But I said, well, what if it was real? What if there was an Atlantis and it was wiped out? Who wiped it out? And I started thinking about it and I said, okay, what if there's a lot parallel Earths and the junction point and the time patrol actually ties into the Atlantis series in that the junction point where all the parallel worlds came from is the moment ancient Atlantis was destroyed. When that happened, we ended up with all these timelines. So there's one timeline that's now going around to other timelines and raping our natural resources, drawing them in. They're more powerful than we are. Uh, so that was the premise of the Atlantis series. So I had six books where we fight this war against what's called the shadow um, timeline. Um, so so you, you think that Atlantis was probably just a fictional place made up by Plato? I think it was probably a real place. I just don't know where it was. Uh, people put it all over the, over the world. Just, you know, they got the famous, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Pure Reese map. Mm-hmm. that has it moving down to Antarctica. Um, you got to remember, we've explored so little of what's under the ocean. Uh, true. Very tiny, true. tiny, tiny percentage of what's under there. We've explored, uh, you know, I drove a couple of years ago, I took my Jeep out west and I drove around southeast in Utah, which was the last place in the continent in the United States to be mapped because it's so remote. Uh, I mean, I drove out to Hole in the Rock above the Colorado River, 120 miles cross country um, to get there where the Mormons actually crossed the Colorado. And I couldn't believe they did it. I mean, it was phenomenal to look down this huge gap, you know, a thousand feet down to the Colorado River. And it was only like eight feet wide. 
and they lowered their wagons down there. So we don't know that much. I mean, I, I still look at how little of space we actually have explored. Every day I get the updates from Voyager out there. You know, this many light hours from Earth. And how, many, how long has it been out there? Uh, you know, one of them just finally just a- exited the heliosphere for the mm-hmm. first time. We're actually intergalactic for the first time. Exciting. So um, do you believe in aliens? Absolutely, they're out there somewhere. The universe is too big. There's other life forms yeah. out there. It's just so huge, and the space between everything is so vast. Um, you know, and if I was them coming here, I'd keep on booking. I don't think I'd stop. <laughs> and if you think about how we sort of are exploring other planets, you know, I mean, other other intelligent species are doing the same thing. So it starts out really small. Right. Um. Do you think that the craziness that we're experiencing here in 2020 could be the result of a screwed up uh, timeline? Uh, no. What we're experiencing, <laughs> we're experiencing now is, is that a, a mental illness um, causes everybody. If everybody's around someone who's mentally ill, uh-huh. it affects everyone whichever way it goes. Okay. Uh, I'm not being political. I'm just saying, you know, you're, you try to explain crazy either you accept this crazy and then it bothers you or you try to make crazy normal and then you appear crazy. So we're sort of going through a schizoid moment right now. Um, okay. So, so this, you know, this is actually, that's interesting. This is a topic that I've been looking for a guest to talk about, which is the idea of a mind virus. Yeah. Well, literally there is, I mean, the social media is, I always remind people that Facebook was founded by a guy so he could rank on his girlfriend. Okay, so it had a bad seed when you think about that. You know, in a way, Facebook is a mind virus. It had a very bad origin, so nothing really good could come out of that down the line, and nothing good has come out of it down the line. Um, people are li- living inside it. It's very strange to me that we have access to more information. The average person has access to more information than anyone in the history of humanity, yet so many of us live in our own echo chamber of only wanting the information that validates our feelings. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I do see a, a whole lot of that. Um, like, like, so, so do you think, um, I mean, like mental illness, I mean, so, like, along with that has to come with obviously delusion and disinformation. Mm-hmm. And, well, and that's just swaying the way, you know, you know, everything into a wrong direction? No, I mean, it's always been that way. I mean, they're doing MRIs now, and they find literally our brains, the, the physical structure of our brain, the chemistry inside of our brain, we don't have as much free will as we think. I mean, they can look at someone and they can test whether they have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. It's different parts of the brains light up. When you know, their belief systems challenge, there are people whose brains literally operate in a different way from people who are willing to go, oh, yeah, I'm wrong. Maybe I should do it a different way. Um, you know, mental illness is not a choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's, people think that. It, it's not a choice. And one of the problems we've got is all we're seeing now in a weird way is extremism on both sides and a lot of mental illness uh, on both sides because that's what makes the news. It's not normal people making the news. Do you think the mental illness is like contagious and, you know, people that are, were once normal suddenly become mentally ill? Um, to an extent, I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing people who, the vast majority of people just don't care. Mm-hmm. I always go back to one thing we learned in the special forces course, you know, the resistance in France. We studied that. You know, everybody wants to claim, oh, the resistance was so great and all the French after the war were like, oh, it's part of the resistance. In actuality, a, a microscopically tiny portion of the French people joined the resistance. The vast, vast majority of them just went about their day. If they were a farmer, they farmed. If they were a banker, they banked. And they didn't really care that much that the Germans were occupying the country. You know, they just went about their lives. And I think most people are like that. They just want to go about their lives. The problem is we have this intrusion of the Internet. And in a weird way, it's, the Internet is doing the opposite of what 
a lot of people thought it would do. Even though I remember I researched the internet, I did a couple of my time patrol missions are about the internet. You know, when your first internet message in 1969, one of the guys of ARPANET who was part of that, he wrote a paper and he said, you gotta remember now, from now on, we don't control the truth anymore and we don't control what's secret anymore. He says, that's out. And once we start doing this thing, he says, all the gloves are off. This is gonna change everything tremendously. He's right. Yeah, he's totally right. So I'm not sure where it's going to go. Interesting. Well, back, you know, um, and, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is sort of swinging back to the Green Beret thing. Um, in special forces, um, are soldiers taught to compartmentalize their own thoughts and beliefs so they don't interfere with the mission? To an extent, I mean, you, you are trained extensively. Uh, the people who handle the missions the best are the ones who compartmentalize. I mean, you have to be able to compartmentalize. I mean, war actually makes no logical sense. So anyone who, who's military has to compartmentalize, um, you know, to deal with it. Um, you know, that's why the training is so difficult. It, it, they're, what they're finding is people who, who can focus on one task at a time and achieve it. So they're not looking for multitaskers. No, they got multitaskers there. That's a different thing. I'm mm -hmm. talking about overall arching mission, mission goal first. Like just focus on that mission, get it done. Yeah, get it done. And ultimately, you know, most people do not fight for flag and country and all the rest of that. They fight for their teammates. So you're fighting for each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To keep each other alive. You're not really yeah. worried about the country so much. Oh, I mean, you're worried about the country, but... Well, when you're actually when you're actually in battle, it's for each other. Yeah, it's for each other. Hmm. I, I guess that would explain why why so many people who serve um, seem to have a bond with each other that normal people don't have. Right. It's it's a unique experience. You can't you really can't describe it. You can't pass it on. I remember we were watching mm -hmm. yesterday watching that War of the Roses thing. They did some reenactments of the battles, and I was just going, "Oh my man, those are brutal!" You know, face to face, axes, swords, just pounding. And they were analyzing the, the. They found you know the body. They found the mass grave, and they were examining the bodies, and it was just unbelievably brutal. But then I said, "Well, what would those people think of artillery these days? You know, or airplanes coming in and dropping bombs on them, or you know." night vision goggles or tanks. I mean, you know, war's always been brutal. Right. Yeah. I mean, the way we do war now is sort of detached. Uh, I mean, I think back then, like when, you know, two people are actually in combat, at least you're looking at each other. Well, it depends. Um, you know, the vast majority of soldiers never fire their weapon, um, even when they're deployed to combat zones, but they, they see the results of it. And that's the same effect. If you see the results of an IED, you receive the results uh -huh. of a you know five hundred pound bomb landing on a building. It's pretty devastating. Yeah, yeah, it's good. yeah. I, I have friends. I have one friend specifically who who spent a lot of time in combat, and he's you know told me about it. Um, what other topics have you written about? Oh, you've written about, we got time travel, we got Area 51. Um, I've got my military thriller series. To military. Go um, um, but the other thing I've got, too, is I've got my uh, survival book, uh, the Green Beret Preparation Survival Book. That's one of my best sellers right now. Because what I did was I looked at what's out there on the market because, you know, we run the SEER School, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape School at Fort Bragg. It's part of the Q course now for Special Forces. Uh, out of Camp McCall, and I was on the faculty of the, the school. Um, and actually, I wrote it because my grandson lives in, uh, my son and my two grandsons live out in San Diego. And I started thinking, you know, I started looking at it going, you know, well, water's a problem out there, earthquake. Mm -hmm. There's not many ways out of San Diego, like Seattle, same thing. A lot of people don't realize there's not many routes out through the mountains. Um, so I, you know, I thought, are they really prepared? So I looked at the survival and preparation books, and most of them, you know, they act like you know you're going to be stranded in the woods with, you know, naked and have to go from there. And I'm like, no, you got to start with the basics. So I wrote the Green Beret Preparation Survival Guide, and I did it starting from zero. You know, buy two cases of water per person in your household. That's the first thing to do. Page one, I tell people, everybody do that. That's the number one priority: water. 
And then I work forward and I teach people how to do the area study, which is what we did in special forces before we deployed to an area of operations. Because everybody sits, I get all these questions about survival and I'm like, do an area study first because your situation, where you live, who you are is different from everybody else's. Uh-huh. One size does not fit all. You got to prepare for your personal situation. So everybody is preparing slightly differently. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy with that book and I feel like it helps people. And I, I donate so, uh, a lot of the money from all my affiliate links to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation from that. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to have to get that book. It's something that I would be interested definitely in reading. You know, because you're right. Most of the survival stuff is mostly like Bush survival. Yeah. I mean, not, and and the I, I've never really thought about like, you know, just survival in, you know, a domestic survival, basically. Yeah. I mean, your most threats are in your house. Most people get hurt by falls. But I also talk about a phase that no, people don't really talk about in survival. I'm like, you're not going to go from civilization, even if we have an apocalyptic scenario, you know, shit hits the fan, they're going to go from that to nothingness. I said, there's a whole phase called scavenging, which is an art form. You know, it's about the only thing that uh, Walking Dead did right is, you know, they had that one guy who was a good scavenger. There's a, there's a way to scavenge. There's a lot of material out there. You're not going to have to go to eating, you know, roots and berries. There's a lot of food out there stored. Mm. There's, there's water out there. There's supplies out there but you got to know what you're looking for and you can't go to the places other people are going to. Um, you got to find your bug out hide site. You know, I, I just did a post today on my blog and medium about, you know, the survival silo out in, of Wichita, Kansas. And I see these rich people paying all this money for things. And I'm like, okay, there's a reason for that, but here's your problem. And I talk about the inverse rule of security. The more people you bring in to guard you, the less safe you are. So what's your, how do you handle that sliding scale of security on, on that situation. Um, there's a lot of factors in survival that I, uh, people have not really thought through. Are, are weapons important in survival? Cause like, I know like where I live here in Alabama, like, you know, especially with everything that's happening now, like, and I see people post on, on Facebook all the time, like they're just stockpiling ammunition. And I'm like, uh, like how, how much is that going to help a person? It has limited help. I mean, because, you know, that, that whole issue is very touchy. People get upset about it. And they, I get sometimes accused I'm a gun grabber. No, I'm not. I'm not anti-gun. I own guns. I do, um, too. Like, I'm not anti-gun I, I either. Well, but... have you really, really, really thought through what happens if you pull a gun on another human being? That, I don't care what the scenario is. Survival scenario, robbery, mm-hmm. any confrontation. You know, you have escalated this into a life or death situation. Yeah. How many of those are you going to live through? Um, yeah, I think guns have a place, but you know, I tell people like hunting, your most efficient hunting is trapping. Mm-hmm. You know, snare wire is really important. You know, um, and you know, people have dozens of guns, fine, that's great. But you're going to shoot one at a time. And <laughs> it's different true. guns serve different purposes. You don't yeah. need a whole bunch of guns. You need a certain, a handful of specific weapons. Uh, my theory on a gun is I'd rather have it and not, I'd rather need it and have it than not have it and need it. Yeah, is my philosophy on that. But I'm not into, um, you know, that is the number one survival priority. Number one survival priority is water. Uh, you know, after that, shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we get to the point where people are shooting at each other, then, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole different ballgame. I, I, I think it's a crutch uh, that people hold on to. Yeah, yeah. Like, like for me personally, like I have a, you know, I have a gun. You know, I have. Um, this might be a little out of order, but I have a gas mask, like a real gas mask, you know, in case mm-hmm. something bio- a real biological or chemical thing happened, um, a generator, and I always have water. So how do you think I would fare? Reasonably okay. I mean, I, I generate is an interesting point. We had a whole house generator in our last house, and we're looking to buy a house now. And one of the things we talked about was, well, we, we like a whole house generator, but recently I, I'm starting to get bigger and bigger on solar. I actually have a solar panel on the top of my Jeep. There's not much room up there, but I've got one. I've got a um, Yeti 400 in my Jeep with a backup battery. Uh, So I can actually, I I do remote camping and I've got power, renewable Mm -hmm. power. Um, I can also charge the Yeti from the the Jeep engine while I'm driving. Um, So I'm looking now at there's, you know, I've just started looking into it, but I'm thinking, you know, solar 
with a, a house, you know, I know Tesla makes a house battery that can run your house for a while and charges off the grid, but it can also charge off solar. So that's one thing I'm looking at. I, I think that changes the ball game considerably. There are things that I've actually changed in my survival guide. Once I started researching, actually, you know, I've got solar panels, I'm using it. Uh, like I wasn't, I was, a, I have physical books. Mm-hmm. Because knowledge is critical to survival. But now I've got all the books in ebook downloaded because I can actually access, I will have power to recharge my iPad, my computer, and my cell phone, even if there's no internet and any of that. I can access those books in the palm of my hand, you know, for a long, long time. And I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, I do have one solar power, power station. Um, it's kind of funny, actually, where I live, we're not allowed to have solar in our houses. So I don't know yeah, why. same thing here, but I, I, if you're not breaking rules, <laughs> you know, as, long as, <laughs> as long as you don't tie into the grid, you're okay. You can do anything you want, but you can't yeah. tie into the grid with the solar. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know why. Like, in New Jersey, tons of people have solar. Here, you're not allowed to have it. Uh, it seems uh, counterproductive to people that are supposed to be into survival it is it is kind of productive but you know you, you can do a lot of things on your own yeah yeah just hide them yeah um so what kind of uh projects do you have coming up next like are you, are you going to start any new series i've got a couple of things i i'm really enjoying my native fiction series uh, there's four books already out in it first one's new york minute then there's Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Walk on the Wild Side, um, Hell of a Town, the next one coming next year is No Quarter. Those are all song titles, but title's not copyrighted. It's a, set in New York City in 1977, which is when I grew up in the city. Son of Sam was there, the blackout, the city was going down right. to two. This guy's an ex-Green Beret. I kind of say it's, you know, Jack Reacher meets the Equalizer. Uh-huh. You know, he's going around trying to right the wrongs and all the rest of that. Um, I've... I got, I'm writing, working on the next book in that series. I also have a new series called the, that go along sort of my survival book, The Green Beret Guide to Great Disasters. Uh, in each book, I cover seven uh, great disasters from the past, and I point out how they happened. And I, I have a rule of seven. They didn't just happen. Six things went wrong, then the disaster happens. So I cover things like the Titanic, the Donna Party, Little Bighorn, the Sultana, and I lay out how they could have been prevented by examining how they happened. Um, and that's more an organization design thing. So I got two of those books out and I'll have a third out next year. Um, like I said, though, they're interesting in this. I am one, I'm the only male author on the Romance Writers of America honor roll because I fit the New York Times list in romance. And I'm writing a sequel to that, to Agnes and the Hitman. Uh, I think it's going to be called Shane's Red Wed- Shane and the Red Wedding uh, mm-hmm. to talk about Game of Thrones give you an idea what it's about yeah right <laughs> that's totally different in tone it's funny it's funny it's a lot of you know banter um it's a fun book to write and everything i like shifting tone every once in a while and, you know doing something a little bit lighter uh-huh um when you write do you write one book at a time or do you write multiple books at a time like do you ever write a book like all right i'm tired of writing this one so i'm going to write something else and kind of bounce around i write one book at a time because that's all i can keep in my head i write it from beginning to end straight through and then i'm done and maybe i'll do a non-fiction book uh, and then i'll move on to the next novel i kind of have a, a working timetable in my head because i've been doing this for so long that i know how long it's going to take I, I have a clicking a ticking clock on when i want to have it done like i want to have this book done by christmas um so but only one at a time i can't multitask on on writing books non-fiction and fiction are very different they require um, different mindset. Yeah, I can see that. Because um, like I know, like like Stephen King, like he writes like a whole bunch of stuff at a time, and he'll go back and finish something that he wrote like twenty years ago. And I'm like, how, how does he do that? <laughs> well, he know? writes to stay sane. <clears throat> Got to remember, he's writing his fantasies. We, we prefer him writing them than living them. Mm-hmm. You know, most writers are. We're, we're writing out things. If we can think of it, we could do it. But instead of doing it, we're writing it which is a good thing for most people. Yeah. It, it just amazes me that he could write something and then put it down for like 10 years and then pick it back up again and just, oh, just finish it off. Right. I'm like, yeah. it just blows my mind that he does that. 
and, and, and he does it kind of like I mean I've read some of his stuff where where you know it's like you do see like I can pick up a little bit of a difference in writing style mm-hmm. you know because I think it's like I don't know if you I'm, I'm sure your writing style has changed over 30 years oh yeah it's definitely changed hopefully it's a lot better yeah yeah so 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 like if you were to like take something that you started like 30 years ago and then wrote like the second part of it it's going to have two completely different styles of writing to an extent it is but also your brain you know your brain works in a certain way um i find like if i get the what they call the galleys back on a book that i wrote two years ago and i'm reading it to check it I, my brain starts thinking this needs to come next. And of course that comes next. Mm-hmm. Uh, our brains are pretty set in the way they're going to think. Pretty cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so where can my listeners find you and find your books? Um, my website is bobmayer.com, B-O-B-M-A-Y-E-R.com. And on that website, I also like today I have three free books. Um, Two are permanently free. The first book in my Green Beret series, the first book in my historical fiction series uh, set in the Civil War are free. And I also have New York Minutes free today mm-hmm. for Veterans Day. Um, I, have new, I have free books pretty much all the time on my freebies page. But I also have um, people interested in survival. I probably have about 30 slide shares, slide, downloadable free slideshows on various aspects of survival. I also have them on writing and on history on the page that says workshops. Um, they're there. They link you to the slide the website, SlideShare, which has PowerPoint presentations you can download for free. So there's a lot of free material out there on my website. Cool. I'll definitely post a link uh, to that in the notes of this episode. One, one other question. Um, when you watch TV shows like Naked and Afraid and stuff like that, are, are they anything close to real survival situations? I don't watch them. You don't? One, one simple reason I don't watch them. If there's a camera there, it's not a survival situation. And you can simulate, it's like combat. You can simulate combat all you want until it actually happens. You have absolutely no idea how someone's going to react. Um, they're entertainment. Reality TV is entertainment. They're, they're, they're not there for teaching. I, I've, had, I've watched people talk about them. Occasionally, flipping through the channels, I'll see something, and they're just, some of it is so ridiculous. But I understand what they're doing. They're doing it for entertainment purposes. They uh-huh. make money, and that's fine. Uh, the problem is some people take it seriously. Um, some of it is good advice. I'm not saying it's all bad advice, but it's just not something I can watch. Hmm. Uh- like how important is it to be able to start a fire without a lighter? I think you ought to be able to do it if you really absolutely had to do it. But you know what? When I, even when I deployed 20 years ago, I carried like five lighters on my load bearing equipment. <laughs> I mean, nowadays I, I got lighters all over the place. I also carry, um, because I can recharge with my small solar handheld thing, right. I carry a, um, what do you call it? I don't even know what they call it, but it's a lighter that, uh, it's got a flashlight on one end. It's got a lighter on the other hand. And I can keep that going indefinitely. The mm-hmm. hard part is not the flame. It's building a fire is, is actually a difficult task. It's a lot harder. People haven't done it. Building a fire out in nature is a much more difficult than they realize. I mean, I do a <laughs> lot of remote camping. And, yeah, I sometimes bring my own firewood in, into the forest. Um, because first off, a lot of places have picked over, but also it's a lot more difficult, especially if it's been raining or snowing or windy to build a fire. Um, yeah. That's one of those skills that if you haven't practiced it, I mean, most people haven't spent the night alone in the forest. Um, so I don't even know how they would react to doing that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've always used like those little, uh, fire starter sticks, light yeah. on fire. And, I'm they- a big believer in making it easy. Because they, they give you just enough time to kind of dry whatever you're trying to burn. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I'm for a big fan of, uh, of making it a lot easier than it needs to be. Huh. All right. Um, so, yeah, it's about, so I'm definitely going to check out the survival stuff. I think that's really interesting. And this idea, um, actually, I had a question that I had forgot to ask. Like, when you were talking about scavenging and finding places, that pe- like obviously like the first place that people are going to hit are like the supermarkets and mm-hmm. drugstores and stuff like that. What are the places that people would not think of scavenging? 
you got to go up the supply chain. Um, you know, work warehouses. your way. Amazon, an Amazon warehouse would be spectacular, but people will find that the people who work there will go to. That's the other thing. You got to think about what people know. Mm-hmm. Do they know about these places? What you're looking for is pe- places people don't know, places people will overlook. I, I would say the poor man's survival guide is find your local prepper, take their stuff. Now the preppers get upset and they go, and you ain't going to take my stuff. And I go into my rule of security. All right. How are you going to guard it? And that becomes an interesting discussion. Um, it's not as easy as people think it is. Um, you have to think outside the box. You have to, uh, I had a client recently. I do area studies for people. I assess their situations who wanted to figure out how to get out of New York city on foot. And I grew up in New York city in the Bronx. So I had a lot of fun researching that. There's a lot of undergrad hell of a town. One of my recent books, I talk about there's 10,000 miles of tunnels on the New York City. Nobody knows all those tunnels. There's an old, the old Croton Reservoir isn't being used. One of the tunnels isn't being used. You can walk out of city, New York City underground. When really? they opened the reservoir, originally they floated a boat down into New York City underground. I also talk about rail lines. People don't think about rail lines. Rail lines are critical. Um, you can walk rail lines you know, to get out of places. If you really sit, most people haven't taken the time to think it through. But if you think it through, there are places where there's food, you know, gas, airport parking lots. Um, you know, if you start thinking outside the normal, uh, the convenience store, the supermarket, and start thinking, where, where's the food come from? 18 wheelers stranded uh-huh. on the road, um, shipping hubs, freight trains, freight cars, you know, that are sidelined. Um, it, there's a lot more out there than people realize. Have you ever considered like writing survival guides for like specific situations like hurricanes, fires, floods? I cover all that. I cover all those things in the survival guide. When I talk about an area study, it's as people who are in a specific place in a specific situation. And I help walk them through how to think in a way that we were trained in special forces that most people don't think the way we think. Uh, think. We were very, very paranoid people. Uh, so we had a strange mindset. <laughs> do you still live uh does that affect you any at all being you know being um, trained in a paranoid way like in regular society you know the, the lockdown hasn't bothered my wife and i it hasn't really changed our lives at all we don't really go anywhere uh, we're looking at buying a house now and one of the requirements was i had a couple acres so we're looking at you know my wife you know loves gardening and that's a uh-huh. skill that people don't think of it's really really important you know we're looking at um you know, how, to at least be able to, if we needed to go off the grid, we don't want to go off the grid, but mm-hmm. we are going to buy a place and design it to be able to go off the grid. Cause I don't really foresee things getting much better. Climate change is really going to affect things. So we're not just looking at ourselves. We're looking at our son and our grandsons um, to give them a refuge. Awesome. So, so at least like you're almost like looking out for the next generation of your family. Yeah, I think everybody has to. I mean, they're going to have a tough time. They're going to have a much tougher time than we have with the, with the warming, with the weather changes. We've had all these hurricanes this year with sea levels rising. I, you know, it's not political. It's a reality. Yeah. And the better we can prepare for it, uh, the better we can do. Hmm. I guess that's kind of like uh, my grandfather came here from Italy, and he came from like a, a, you know, like a poor farming town. And when he moved, came to the United States, he bought a house, but he always grew his own food. Um, he always would go basically fishing and eat fish. Like, like the guy could live basically without money. <laughs> yeah. You know. There's a lot of money. I mean, one thing I, I talk about is, you know, we, people living in an apartment in Manhattan can put a garden on their terrace. You know, you've got these uh, boxes now, you put dirt in it. You grow, and people are amazed at it. I mean, it, people who haven't gardened have no idea how much food you can get out of just a tiny little garden. Hmm. You know, somebody else was telling me about, uh, when it comes to gardening, like something called aeroponics or something like that, where you basically, you don't even put the plants in dirt. You just, they're kind of like, usually like some kind of, mineral water and it creates like a mist and feeds them. Oh, there's so many things. I mean, that's the one good thing I think is there are so many inventive people out there coming up with all sorts of interesting things and ways to do things that people haven't thought about before. Uh, my wife recently did discover YouTube, but she's finding, you know, 
how-to videos on YouTube. She, she's finding how to do things. She's always amazed when someone finds a new way to clean, like a shower that she never mm -hmm. thought of. You know, she's like, oh, I wish I'd known that. It would save me so much time. But, you know, we're, we're looking at some of the houses people are building, the energy-efficient houses they're building, um, these movable houses. It's just phenomenal. There's, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. Yeah, like, like I don't know. Our house isn't movable, but I will say, like, like our house is what they call fortified. So, so it's supposed to withstand, like, you know, hurricanes up to 150 mile an hour wind. Yeah, and it's pretty cool. Like, like it did hold hold up like for three hurricanes this year. So, yeah, we used to live on Hilton Head Island, and uh, you know, our house oh, was yeah. 14 feet up. And I had to explain to people because that was the code, and we said, you know, a storm surge is 12 feet, and they didn't understand I meant vertical. I thought I was talking horizontal. I'm like, no, mm -hmm. storm surge is vertical. And a lot of people still don't understand that. And I'm very respectful of the power of water. Yeah, it's definitely powerful. And so is wind. <laughs> oh, yeah, very much. You know, I backed yesterday into the wind. I knew it. It was slowing me down a lot. Like the only thing that happened here is like my fence fell over from the wind. <laughs> I lost the fence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sorry about that last string of questioning. It was just uh, no, no. random stuff popping in on my head. <laughs> oh. But thanks for coming on today and taking the time to speak with me. I very much appreciate it. And uh, happy Veterans Day. Oh, thanks. Thank you. That's pretty cool. I had two military people today. Yeah, shout what out to all the other veterans out there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for serving our country. All right. Appreciate it. And have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.